attend children's churches this time as Vincent comes and preaches the Word of God. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see a little sunshine that may last for about three minutes this morning, but um, I'm glad to be here. My name is Vincent Lee Frieri, and I'm one of the many elders here at South Shore Baptist, and I'm excited to be able to preach God's Word to you this morning. I want us to think about the great apostle Paul. I know that We Baptists think about him a lot, but let's think for a minute about his miraculous conversion on the way to the city of Damascus. It was miraculous because the resurrected Jesus appeared to him who wasn't one of the twelve and called him into faith and service. Who would have thought, right, that someone so hostile to Christianity would be chosen by Jesus to take the gospel to different parts of the vast and great Roman Empire? And many of us are familiar with the missionary trips that Paul went on to evangelize and plant churches. One particular region that was impacted by Paul's missionary work in the first century was called Phrygia in present-day Turkey. And I know that this map may not be the clearest, but I thought it was a helpful visual. Nevertheless, we have um, behind me here a map of western Turkey and the Aegean Sea to the left, and just on the other side is Greece. And on the bottom right, we have the region of Phrygia in the red square there. So it kind of shows you where it was in the Roman Empire and the Mediterranean world. You see Italy to the far left. And so in that particular city, to the right of the slide here, um, in, that, in this particular map, rather, on the slide, you have three cities, Colossae, which is highlighted with the red, and then just about 10 miles northeast is the Revelation Church, a city of Laodicea, and then Hierapolis. And it's in this particular region um, that the gospel went forth directly impacted by Paul's missionary work in the first century. Of course, there were other regions too, but this, is our, this region's our focus this morning. But our actual context is and for the next several weeks, is Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. Now, unlike Rome or Ephesus, the site of Colossae today doesn't have any ruins standing to speak of. And that's why um, you see nothing, you see a city in the distance, but it was actually in the foreground where that mound is, that they think the city of Colossae, the main part of the city, was. And so that's the vicinity of where the Christians that Paul wrote to in Colossians lived. And as you can see, there's just no, no ruins standing at all. It's not much of a site to visit. 
Um, this city, just to give you a little economic background, was known for its large fig and olive production due to the waters of the Lycus River nearby. And it was also famous for its sheep wool. So you could be all the way in Rome and there could be a wealthy person that possessed black sheep wool. And people would have known that it originated in this part of the empire. And so Colossa was an important city for the gospel to penetrate. And there were different kind of people living in Colossa as well. People indigenous to the region, along with some Romans, of course, and Greeks and Jews. How did the Romans get there? The Romans were there because of their vast empire. And earlier, the Greeks had colonized parts of eastern Turkey years earlier. But the Jews had been in the region, like Colossae, a couple of hundred years even before Paul's ministry. It all started when Antiochus III sent about 2,000 Jewish people still living in Babylon to Phrygia. And so the Jews living in Colossae by the time the gospel got there had already been there for quite a while. And the different peoples living in the city of Colossae had various religious beliefs. And of course, religion was a very significant part of their everyday life. Different gods, such as the goddess Sibyl, were worshipped through loud singing, music, and dancing. Jews, of course, worshipped God, but they also liked to mix elements from other religion in their Judaism. For example, many Jews use magic to confront life's hardship because they believe that the magic combined with certain ascetic practices like fasting from different foods and eating only certain things could be very effective. And both Jews and Gentiles firmly believed that spiritual forces were out there impacting everyday life. And as we're going to see later on in the series this summer, when uh, Pastor Steve and Mike and Kevin preach, these things contributed to the Colossian church's problems. But how did the gospel get to Colossae? Because Paul did not actually travel to Colossae with the gospel. Rather, biblical scholars think that Epaphras, a man by the name of Epaphras, heard Paul's preaching in Ephesus, and after believing and putting his faith in Jesus, returned to his home in Colossae and shared the good news, and then that's how the church in Colossae was born. And we, we'll see in chapter 1, verse 7, that it was the brothers and sisters in Colossae who first heard the gospel through Epaphras. What about the letter itself? Paul wrote to the Colossian church from a prison in Rome around 60 AD. So Paul sitting in a prison in Rome, and instead of dwelling on his misfortune, he still wants to minister the gospel. And so he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to minister the gospel through my hand, through the power of the pen. 
And Epaphras was with him at this time in Rome. And Epaphras probably told Paul, look, there's some issues going on in the church in Colossae. And this is what prompted Paul to write this letter. But what's really important to note is this letter was not only meant to be read to the Christians in Colossae. It was also for the Christians in Laodicea. And that's significant. Don't miss this point. Because it speaks to the fact that this letter was not just meant for Christians in one location, Colossae, but for others. And church, it is still the word of God to us today on the south shore of Boston. In this sermon series this summer, we're going to learn about the false teaching that they were up against. But this morning, Paul talks about how the Colossians possessed faith and love and were called to grow in knowledge and holiness because of the hope that they had in Jesus and what that hope means. Let's turn to the text. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. But first, let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that we are here this morning because our very breath depends upon you, let alone our gathering together this morning. There are probably some of us in here who it took a lot of effort to be and gather with the saints this morning, and we thank you for giving those of us the strength to do so. Lord, be with those that aren't able to be with us this morning. Thank you for preserving your word all the way to 2023 for us to hear you speak and to receive it. Lord, make your word a swift word, passing from our ears to our hearts, from our hearts to our lips, and conversation. Just as the rain does not return empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given, Lord. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you in peace from God our Father, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Verse 4, For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit And it's growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learn this from Epaphras, 
a dearly loved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Praise be to God. What an opening to a letter, huh? He's got quite a long sentence there at the end. And what I think he's saying is, we are so grateful to you, Colossians. We are so grateful to the Father, rather, for you, Colossians, that you have come to believe in Jesus and to love one another. And we pray that your knowledge of God and holiness of life would continue to grow according to God's power and salvation that he has given you. The we, when Paul says we here, he's referring to at least himself and Timothy. Because in verses 1 and 2, Paul states that this letter is from himself, and he calls himself an apostle. But it's not because Paul wants to boast. He's, he's not the kind of person to say, I'm an apostle, look at me. Remember my title, by the way. He's not that kind of person. But he wants to emphasize that he was an apostle according to God's will, his own God's choosing, not his. And then he mentions Timothy as part of the we, and he calls Timothy our brother. Not my brother, but our brother. Your brother, Colossian church, and my brother. Why? Because Paul's outlook was that everyone that believed in Jesus were all brothers and sisters, even if they had not seen or even known one another. And when Paul says, grace and peace to you, Colossians, he's not using these words loosely. Hey, grace and peace. He's not using these words loosely. Rather, grace and peace is a reality in their lives, just as it is in ours. Because they had been reconciled to God by God's grace, and they were no longer under his wrath. They were no longer under God's wrath. Truly then, they were in a state of peace. That was the peace that they had, no longer being under God's wrath, no longer facing God's judgment for all of eternity. Now in verse 3 through the first part of verse 5, Paul states how grateful he and Timothy are to God 
for two things. He says specifically, we are so grateful for number one, your faith in Jesus, and two, your love for other Christians, for other believers. He doesn't say, notice, he doesn't say, I'm grateful, Timothy and I are grateful for your skills. He doesn't say we're grateful for your status. He doesn't say we're grateful for what you can bring to the table for your usefulness and ministry. Rather, he says, I'm thankful that you guys believe in the Lord Jesus and you have love for each other and other Christians. Paul didn't take faith for granted because he could answer the question, where did the Colossians' faith come from? He knew it wasn't from them. They didn't come up from it with it from their own. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes where their faith come, came from. He says in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 8, For you are saved by grace through faith. Here's the key phrase. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Their faith, Paul knew, was a gift from God to them. Who deposits faith into the hearts of his people to believe in him and his promises. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ this morning here, we too have been chosen, just like the Colossians, to believe in Christ through faith. But what was behind the Colossian church's love for other Christians? What was behind that love? What was the root of it? See where it says in verse 5, it says, because of. Their faith and love was because of the hope that the Lord had laid up for them in heaven. In other words, this, this hope that God had laid up for them in heaven was the fuel for their faith and love for one another. So the Colossians possessed the three things that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 13 at the end of the chapter. Faith, hope, and love. Another way to say it is that their confidence in Jesus, their faith in Jesus, produced a selfless love for one another. But Paul in this passage, he doesn't define what that hope is like. He doesn't lay out uh, in this particular section of Colossians what this hope actually is that's reserved for them in God's presence. And I want to mention that it's certainly not the kind of hope that people in the 21st century may think of, like when they hope that something good happens. Like Dante and I were hoping that the Celtics were going to beat the Heat, and it didn't happen. It's not that kind of hope. Rather, it's the kind of hope 
that is certainly going to happen. It's certain to come. It's guaranteed. And Paul says in verse 5, you have heard it through the gospel. The hope reserved for them, brothers and sisters, is their reconciliation with God and get this, their future in God's direct presence. It's the hope of eternal life. And I think Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 4 gives us a great picture of what this hope looks like. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. What an awesome time this is going to be. Sadness and physical pain are going to be absolutely gone. And the Colossians knew that at some point in the future, Christ would come again, his second advent. Today it's June 25th, 2023, and we are still awaiting Christ's second coming. And scripture says that those of us who die, like some have died from us recently, will be present with Jesus. And those who have died and those who are still alive, like us right now, we wait, are waiting for Jesus to come a second time and resurrect our bodies. And this is a neglected promise. Some people don't ponder on the promise of our future resurrection. Do we ever think about it? Are we looking forward to this day? Some of us may be familiar with Joni Erickson Tata, who is a Christian author, speaker, and advocate with people, for people with disabilities. And I want us to listen to what she had to say about how she is looking forward to her resurrection. She says, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven. And then in my new, perfect, glorified body, standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands. I'll say, thank you, Jesus, and he will know that I mean it because he knows me. 
He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble. Because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was on that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Then the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin and all of earth will join in the party. And at that point, Christ will open up our eyes to the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we ever experience on earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus really will wipe away our tears. I find it so poignant that finally at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because God will. Unlike Joni, some of us are distracted. Many of us, myself, very included, by temporary things that seek to obscure our future hope. I think media theorist Douglas Rushoff was very on point here when he said, our society has reoriented itself to the present moment. Everything is live, real time, and always on. It's more of a dis diminishment of anything that isn't happening now. I think this is why so many of us neither cherish nor anticipate our future resurrection. We're just caught up with what's happening now. Constantly caught up with what's happening, not even just in front of me, but oftentimes more so around the whole country or around the whole world. And we allow the pace that this society has set for us and the temporary things of this life to dim the reality and joy of our salvation and future hope. So what's the solution? Paul tells us in Philippians 4.8, he says, dwell on whatever is true. That's what Joni does. That's what we need to do. Dwell on the truth of our future resurrection. We need the discipline of dwelling on Scripture and its promises, like the promise of our resurrection and eternity spent with Jesus in his presence. And we need to preach and speak these truths to ourselves. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welsh pastor who left his career as a medical doctor and pastored Westminster Chapel in London for almost 30 years. He died in 1981. And I think what he has to say is very helpful. This is what he says. 
you have to take yourself in your hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must turn on yourself, unbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way, and then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself. Defy other people. And defy the devil in the whole world. And say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. We have to preach to ourselves the truths and the promises of God. We cannot rely on it once in a while. we got to make it a habit. We have to dwell on God's promises to us. Going to verse 5, Paul says to the first part of verse 7, how the gospel came to them in Colossae, produced this hope that they had, that we just have been talking about, and this gospel was bearing fruit. And I don't want us to miss this, but what Jesus predicted earlier, before his death and resurrection, and even after, was already starting to come to pass. Remember, the, the resurrected Jesus said, this gospel would be preached to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And now, over 20 years later, it's in Colossae, in the region of Phrygia. Jesus had told his disciples, also in John 15, 16, I have appointed you to go and bear fruit. And now, not only did they produce fruit, but now, disciples of Jesus' disciples were producing fruit. We saw in, uh, we see in verses 8 and 9 that Epaphras was the one who brought them the gospel. And Paul says that the, the very day they heard the gospel from Epaphras, um, they responded to it. And when Paul heard about the day that they had received the gospel and responded to it, Paul and Timothy started to pray for them and had not stopped. And we've seen how this hope fuels the love of the church. But I have a question for us this morning. And I've asked myself this. How well do we love one another here at South Shore Baptist? Do we love one another such that the world will know we are Jesus' disciples, as Jesus said in John 13, 35? Because think about it. We may excel in our programs. We may have strong resources. We may be known in greater Boston. We may have great worship and teaching. But we must be known by our love for each other if we're going to make disciples of the South Shore and beyond like we say we're going to. And what does this partially look like? I think it looks 
more, it looks like more than just mental or, or oral or verbal assent to love one another. I think it looks like showing attention and genuine interest to those brothers and sisters in our church that we don't know very well. I think it means not just being around those we do know and feel comfortable with. Remember in, in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, that Jesus, he said, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And of course, he said this while teaching about loving our enemies. But I think this can be applied here as well, as a church. I mean, if we only love those fellow believers here in church who know us and who show us love and attention, but we don't love those that we don't really know very well and don't go out of our way to show love to those people, how are we ever going to be able to love our enemies when they come? And also, I think what love looks like is that we allow us, that, I mean, excuse me, love allows us to tenderly speak truth to one another here, even when it's hard. And it helps bear burdens. And love in Jesus upholds sound biblical doctrine and lovingly corrects a departure from gospel truth. In this other section of chapter 1, Paul also informed the Colossians that he and Timothy were praying that God would fill them with knowledge of his will. And that word there, fulfill, can also mean complete. Paul was praying that the Ephesians, uh, the Colossians rather, would be completed in their knowledge of God and of God's will or desire for them with God's wisdom and understanding. Because Paul knew just because they had faith and love did not mean that there was no more knowledge of God to be obtained. He knew that they didn't have the full knowledge of God, and they still needed his wisdom. They still needed God's understanding, and we'll surely see that later on in the book. But I think as Christians, we must all seek to learn more about God and his ways. I think that if we're at a place where we think to ourselves, I have arrived, we're in a dangerous place. We must never think that we have no more to learn from his word. We must never think that we've exhausted his word. And Paul prayed this prayer because he wanted them to not only grow in the knowledge of God, but also in verse 10, to walk worthy of the Lord. What does that mean? What's one word for that phrase? Holiness. He prayed that they would live holy lives while doing good works for God in a dark world. And Ephesians 1.4 says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. But what's striking is it says why he chose us for the foundation of the world. And it says right after that to be holy and blameless. Blameless. 
That is why God has chosen us. To be holy and blameless. Not to be famous, but to be holy and blameless. And how do we pursue this holiness that God has called us to? By fighting. J.C. Ryle, former Anglican bishop of Liverpool, England, said this. He said, better, far better is the position of him who fights under Christ's banner against sin, the world, and the devil. He may get little praise of man while he lives and go down to the grave with little honor, but he shall have that which is far better, far more enduring. The Colossians' fight for holiness is not what saved them. Rather, they were saved to fight for holiness. Are we fighting for holiness? Are we fighting against our own sin? Or are we giving in and saying, I can't do this? Though we have been saved and justified and adopted by God, and we have his grace. Are we praying for ourselves and each other to grow in holiness? Do we just pray for each other's physical needs, or do we also pray for each other to be sanctified? This can only happen when we are empowered by God. Paul says in verses 11 and 12, he basically says, look, you can't endure in your walk with Christ without being empowered by God for patience, joy, and gratitude. They need God to give them the power to be patient, joy, and grateful so that they can endure in holiness and in their trust and the hope of the gospel. But our culture seeks to be empowered in many different ways, doesn't it? I see slogans around that say things like, be your own hero. Sometimes I've seen bumper stickers or signs that say, the only person you should try to be better than is the person you were yesterday. I've even seen one recently that says, take time to make your soul happy. Many people pursue all kinds of activities to reach a state of empowerment or wellness. They try to empower themselves to feel better about themselves, deal with stress, or to face life's difficulties. But it's the Lord himself who empowers his people. He fills us with his spirit, and it's he who equips us to wage war against our own sin, the devil, and the worldly pressures that come upon us. And when he equips us in this way, he also gives us strength to express gratitude to him with joy. Where does your joy come from? Where does my joy come from? Society tells us our joy comes from those goals and doing those things that make us happy. Yet Jesus said, my joy is your joy. In John 15, 11, Jesus said, and I quote, I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy 
may be complete. That joy, brothers and sisters, comes from his love for us, which is the same degree of love that the Father had for him. Listen, he says in verse 9, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Jesus loves us as the Father has loved him, his only begotten Son. That is the source of our joy. And at the end of this prayer, Paul reminds them of the amazing thing that God had done. He enabled them far off in Colossae to share in the inheritance of his people. That future hope. When Paul said that they were sharing in the saints' inheritance, I think we should, we should see this here. When Paul uses that language, you, you are, you, God has given you an inheritance, Paul's using language that was formally used to describe the Jewish people's relationship with God under the new covenant. And now what Paul is doing is, he's saying, you Colossian Christians are now part of the people of God under the new covenant, Christ. Can you imagine what the Colossians must have thought to themselves as they heard this? Remember, we learned that in Colossae, people thought that there was evil spirits everywhere and that you had to really fight against these things on your own. Well, the Colossians must have felt when they heard this that they were no, no longer vulnerable subject to these influence of these gods and evil spirits, but instead now belong to the one and only creator of the universe. And their identity was no longer just first century people living under the authority of Rome. No, they were now part of an eternal kingdom which dwarfed and continues to dwarf any earthly kingdom or empire. Think about that, church. We belong to the one who originated the universe. And he has given us an inheritance, an eternal inheritance. And verse 13 says, all of this is based on God's magnificent kindness. He didn't use that word kindness, Paul, but why do I say that? Because of what we read during worship. He has rescued the Colossians from the territory of darkness ruled by Satan. Every person that has ever existed has lived in this territory. But if we are trusting in and following Jesus, it's because the Father has already rescued us from the territory of darkness and moved us into the kingdom of Jesus, God the Son, whom the Father loves. John Chrysostom, a fourth century preacher in Antioch and later bishop of Constantinople, said this, God has counted us worthy of the same things as the Son, and that those of us who were enemies, who were in darkness, have all of the sudden, all of the sudden been transferred to where the sun is to the same honor with him. Chrysostom is not saying that we are the same as Christ, 
He is not saying we are equal to Christ, the Son of God. But what he's doing here is he's reflecting what Romans 8, 17 says. That we are co-heirs, co-heirs with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we will have rights and privileges that will be given to us by God at the end of time. And when God the Father rescued us, the Son redeemed us. We sing about that redemption. It is in Jesus the Son that they and we have redemption. And the word redemption was used to describe the newly found freedom of a slave and criminal. So what Paul's saying here, according to scholar Andreas Kostenberger, is that it is as if, as if we were condemned criminals that have now been set free by Jesus. This, brothers and sisters, is the foundation of our hope. The church existed in Colossae for several hundred more years. Following Paul's letter, they must have heeded his instruction. And his prayers for them were answered. South Shore Baptist Church has been in existence for over 75 years. Is that right? Are we going to heed God's word this morning and God's word preached to us beyond this morning so that our church can be here for years to come? Jesus will build his church and he will build it with the obedience of his people. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, there is no time to you like this time to us. We think of Colossae as being far distant in the past, but because you are the same yesterday and today and forever, you see us just like you saw the Colossian believers that are with you now. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to Dwell on the hope of eternal life with you, Jesus, and resurrected bodies. To increase our faith and love for one another. And to obtain more knowledge of you and be empowered by you for patience and endurance and joy. I pray, Lord God, that and know, Lord God, that your will for our church will continue, will be accomplished according to your purposes. And I thank you for the love that people have felt here and the love that we give to others. So help us to increase in that as we go our ways this morning. In your name, King Jesus. Amen. At this time, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper.